This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning. It's one minute past nine. You are tuned to 102.7, the 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty, everything to do with the seas and the oceans of the world. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Cade Mills. Welcome back, Bron. Thanks, Cade. You've been somewhere a little bit warmer than the current conditions we have outside. Yeah. And before you all hate me, it's the first time I've been out of the country uh, since I think about 1997. 98? Wow. It's been a long time. Did you enjoy the international flight? Did you? Did <laughs> um, make the most of that? Flying there, yeah. Yeah? Flying back, oh my God. It's supposed to be, well, um, when, when I, it was Fiji. So when I booked it, um, uh, the, the, you know, went through a travel agent because, you know, and be kind to me because it's been a really long time. <laughs> Everything has changed. And, uh, and she said, oh, look, you know, you'll be right. It's, um, it's, you'll, you'll fly to Sydney and then switch to a domestic flight, but it's all the same airline, so you'll be fine. I'm like, okay. Anyway, minutes before we're due to get to Nandi Airport to fly back, I get this text message saying, we regret to inform you. And I'm thinking, oh, God, here we go. You're going to have to stay longer and not come <laughs> back? Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is only Friday. And then uh, it, it was um, a, the flight has been delayed by two hours and we can't get you on a connecting flight from Sydney because it's Friday evening and everything's full. So you're going to go via Brisbane. And I'm thinking, okay, fine, you know, longer flight from Brisbane than Sydney, that'll be fine. Anyway, I get to get to Bris Vegas and it was um, uh, a very long flight into Brisbane because we actually ended up diverting south, almost ending in Sydney anyway because of a whole bunch of air traffic and then circling around Brisbane and finally landing and having only basically an hour to clear customs and then race to a completely separate terminal to then get a domestic flight. Anyway. And you were stressing the whole time because you didn't want to miss the show this morning. That was it really, wasn't it? I'm have to spend a weekend in Brisbane. Yeah. it's fine. (laughs) And that was a really long story. Sorry about that, folks. Um, Yeah. Uh, Eye-opening experience in Fiji. Um, Yeah. Yeah? Mm, Incredible. Um, Yeah, look, uh, initially went for just the the whole you know lounge by the pool kind of trip but really really wanted to experience culture and um and took the kids inland into a village to see a village and that was the eye-opening part it was it was it's such a polarized and i'm only speaking from my very limited experience but polarized nation of foreign-owned resorts and people who are living in a really basic way which that was the best part for me was to really experience that and and the heart and the soul that is is of the fijian people so Absolutely loved it. Very keen to go back. And there was also a life... Not, not, I wouldn't say a life-changing moment for you, but... Well, kind you, of is. You caught up with something that you haven't um, been <laughs> associated with for quite a while and given the show. You talk, it's quite fitting, yeah. You're talking about the carver ceremony. That's it. You reunited <laughs> with carver. We actually did have a carver ceremony in the village and... Um, and, and the village chief said, right, you're now in Fiji. And we'd actually been there five days at this stage, but he said, no, you, you're not actually in Fiji until you welcomed with the carver ceremony. And did so you enjoy the muddy water? It was interesting, yeah. Did it um, numb your mouth and yes. your tongue? Yeah, yeah, I found that I couldn't, I slurred my words. Yeah. It was like I was drunk, but mentally I was still quite That's there. Yeah. But very mellow. Yeah, and very um, mellow. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I went for a dive. And if you've uh, been listening to this show they, for a long time. It was pretty low key. You went for a dive. When was the last <laughs> dive you had before that, Brian? Uh, oh, I reckon about 18 years ago. Oh, 
Yeah. And was it like riding a bike? It was. Yeah. And that's what the that's what one of the um, the dive instructors on the little island that we went out to said. He because uh, I was a bit worried. I was thinking it's a long time, and I haven't you know brushed up on my theory. And he's like, don't worry about it. It's, he said it's like riding a bike, put that tank on, go in and you'll remember everything and, you know, obviously there are a few details I didn't remember but the basics I did. So was it a nice big, like wet, salty hug? <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah. Actually, this is going to sound really corny, I felt like I'd gone home. I actually went uh, down there oh. and I was like, I'm back. Well, and keep not- doing it, Bron. <laughs> well, and then, um, you know, I had to Facebook the hell out of it and... <laughs> <laughs> Comments that came back were, um, yeah, it's, you might want to think about a warm wetsuit. And I didn't have a wetsuit at all. I was just in a rashy uh, in Melbourne because it's, what, 12 degrees now? Yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. And it was, yeah. yeah, 28 there. So, yes. A warmer wetsuit or more overseas holidays. Well, or yeah. Or domestic. I mean, you this, can go north. This one took about eight years of saving to get us there. <laughs> so, it's going to take a while to save up for, to go there again. But, um, yeah, amazing. And, again, just coming back to it, it was... Um, it was the the hospitality and just the the depth of soul that exists in the Fijian people. It was, it's very real, and I loved it. And that's such a tiny, small snapshot. And I know there will be people listening who are thinking, you know, well, you should go here and you should go here. And yeah, I'd I'd love to go everywhere now. Yeah, well, it's it's always good when you come back from a trip and you've planned another ten places you need to visit next time you go back. Yeah, just got to work out how to budget them. But anyway, yeah, there you go. All right, fantastic. Banged on for the first five minutes about. Going away. But the dive was, yeah, very significant. We might talk about that a bit later and what it's like. I think we should. Yeah. Yeah. There's probably a few listeners that don't dive and then there's probably a few that all they do is dive. So it'd be sort of interesting for people to hear what it's like to have that kind of time off. And just to have that break between dives, I'm guessing there are probably a few people who listening who are a bit like me, got their dive ticket you know, in their in their early to mid twenties, and maybe haven't dived for a long time, and thinking I'll never get back to that. But um, I can tell you, yes, you can. Yep, and they keep walking along the pier, going, "Just it'd be nice to be in there." Well, that that was the trigger for me. It was with um, PT Hirschfield a couple of years ago, and she went for a dive under Ripe here, and I went for a snorkel, and, and she said, "You've got to get back in the water, as in under the water." And yeah. Terry Allen's been saying the same, and you've been on my back too. So, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for doing yeah. that. Oh. Thank you, Tim, for Vital Bits very much. We're going to launch into the show now. And thank you, Andrew, very much for Soulful Bits. And you can catch them both next Sunday and Tim on Saturday. Uh, today's show, Fom Sharko is going to be shortly in talking about uh, all things to do with plastic in the marine environment. Yeah, she's, the last couple of segments I've been listening have been fantastic mm. and um, a lot of positive stories, like given there are a lot of negative stories out there, but she's mm. been coming in and sort of giving us hope, which is always nice. Mm. Excellent. Looking forward to that. We will uh, then, we're going to be crossing uh, to, I believe he's in Sydney, to speak with uh, Professor Matt Dunbaben. He is from, oh no, Queensland, from the University of Queensland, uh, to talk about some awards that were announced in Sydney during the week. These are the Good Design Awards. And for a very basic name of an award, it actually carries a huge significance. Uh, they've been given out every year for the last 61 years. And for the last 10 years, there's been a category uh, called Good Design Award for Sustainability. So this award this year went to uh, a, a, a contraption, an invention called RangerBot. It's the world's first vision-based underwater robotic system and it's been designed specifically for managing and, well, assessing and managing coral reef environments. So we'll be speaking with Matt Dunbaben about RangerBot. Fantastic. I know absolutely nothing about this, Bron, because you brought it to the table, so I'm looking (laughs) forward to it. It's going to be really cool. And then? Yes, and then we'll... Oh, I got given some homework. 
which was to have a look at the Victorian Environmental Assessment Council's most recent report that came out in May about assessing Victoria's marine um, environments. And I deferred my homework to someone who actually wrote the report, which is Dr Jeff Westcott. So we're going to get him on the phone and get him to give us a rundown about, I guess, the amount of work that went into it and then also what this lays the sort of foundation for sort of following on from this. Um, And we'll have him on the phone at the end of the show. And, uh, and I'm really interested to speak with him about how it's been received because it's been presented to Victorian Minister for Environment, I believe. Yes, yes. Find out what um, how it's been received and what comes from it from here. Well, that's it. I know DELP are working on a draft marine and coastal management plan, so I'm assuming this sort of feeds in directly to that and helps with some of the decisions being made there. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, let's have some weather forecasting. Yes, and as the paper rattles in the background, <laughs> as per Marinara weather tradition. So today we're going to hit a high of 14, um, very high chance of showers over the suburbs and a high chance elsewhere. And it's been windy. It's been really windy. I think even before you came back, we'd had some pretty strong sort of wind stays and I think that's sort of continuing on for a little while. Tomorrow we've got a top of 15. Actually, it's 15 all the way through. All the way to through to Friday, basically. So, got a bit of rain tomorrow. Chance of rain again on Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, <laughs> and Friday. All right, it's sort of Groundhog Day. It That's seems good. <laughs> that next week. It's midwinter. It's what it should be. That's what? it. Uh, but one of the things that happens midwinter, and I remember this as a kid. The weather's horrible. It keeps people away from the beaches, but it doesn't stop the surf. Mm. So this is probably one of the best times to get out in the water because you have all those summer surfers that have you know packed their boards away and they're currently gathering cobwebs under their house and everyone else is out there. Apparently. It's quite a large swell around at the moment so they're sort of saying the open exposed places are either for experienced surfers um, so try and find those little spots sort of tucked away whether it's in western port or on the surf coast there's quite a few there um, and get amongst it make the most of it while you can and everyone else is sleeping brilliant that's it that's oh, and it. the tides sorry i forgot the tides so the <laughs> good at this it's the high tides at 9.45, so in about half an hour at That's Point Lonsdale yep. and with a low tide at 2.35. So the reefs, the expo- your reefs are going to be sort of firing sometime around lunchtime, sort of onwards with a low tide. Cool. We're done. Excellent. Thanks, Kate. Pleasure. Uh, we've got time for some news or shall we go straight to a track? Can I just... I've got one sort of uh, maybe public service announcement mm-hmm. is to help the Port Phillip Eco Centre is developing a new documentary short film to show how our multicultural communities in Melbourne connect to waterways. So what does this mean to your culture? Are there any old family traditions or festivals around rivers, lakes or oceans that form part of your cultural practice? So the Eco Centre want to hear from me basically. So they're putting this together now. So you can get in touch either through RACO, which is... The email is just reiko, R-E-I-K-O, at ecocentre.com or through their Facebook page, which is Ecocentre St Kilda. Um, get in touch and if you have any stories that involve sort of, you know, basically any of the waterways around sort of Victoria, get in touch and share your story when they're hoping to put together a documentary. So Fantastic. people can be a part of it. Yeah, really looking forward to the end product of this. So yeah. It'd be a great sort of tool for sharing and showing how people connect to the waterways because we touch on some of them here, but I'm sure there's a lot of stories we're missing out on. So it'd That's be right. great to get her in at some stage as the stories start flowing in. And 
Nice, nicely done, <laughs> flowing in. <laughs> I didn't even mean it. <laughs> but the Port Phillip and Western Port catchments are huge too. So you imagine and the number of cultures uh, and communities in Melbourne. This should be fantastic. Yes. Can't wait to see this. Yes, yeah. and we do have Fom from the Eco Centre coming up next. Yeah, we do. So, yes. Radio Marinara, welcome Fom Charco. Hi, everyone. How are you going? Good, how are you? Pretty good. Good. I thought uh, we'd uh, do a check-in because we're halfway plastic-free July now. Yes, we are. We are. We were just discussing it off air. And so, said, I'm starting to detox the house of plastic, I think, seems to be the things. You're not introducing new, you're just clearing out all the old stuff, in a sense, that you've accumulated since last year when you did it. Yes. And when you were here last, FOM, you were about to enter into it, and the message was you can't fail. It doesn't matter what you do, you can't fail, because everything is going to make an improvement. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's a little bit of shame that Ant isn't here today, because he was embarking on the challenge for, yep. the, uh, for the first time ever. So it would be really nice to check in with him at the end of July and see, see how he's gone. Um, but yeah, I thought that um, I'd just share a few uh, pro tips for if you want to continue with Plastic Free July after July, because of course, when you do it for the first time, you most of uh, the efforts are going into your shopping, right? Because you want to try and shop plastic, single-use plastic free. So that's kind of where all the attention goes. But once your eyes are opened, uh, you see that you're actually using so much plastic in your house already that you have been using your entire life and haven't even thought about it. For mm. example, toothpaste that comes in plastic tubes, uh, shampoo, um, conditioner, cleaning products, things like that. Um, so I just wanted to share a few alternatives to those that I've been using for a few years. And the first one, definitely one of my favorites is a tooth powder that you can make yourself. Um, there is a company called TerraCycle that will take your toothpaste uh, bottles or what do you call those tubes tubes mm -hmm. toothpaste tubes uh, for recycling but then you know you have to collect them and then you have to send them off to them and, and and all that sort of stuff and you're still using that plastic but with um, plastic free tooth powder you can make it yourself at home uh, nearly plastic free <laughs> nearly <laughs> plastic free uh, and it will last you for a very long time so this recipe that I'm about to share with you is not mine it's uh, it's from from Erin Rhodes who is our plastic free maven from Melbourne she wrote um Waste Not, which is which is her new book that came out last year, and uh, she lives a truly plastic-free lifestyle. All of her single-use plastic that she's used for like the last four years fit in one mason jar. It's quite incredible. Wow. And in the meantime, you know, she has had a plastic-free wedding and a plastic-free baby. So <laughs> she, you know, she proves that normal people can do this, uh, which is really quite inspiring. Um, so I made this plastic-free tooth powder and, and gave it a good try. I had a few misses, actually. <laughs> like I tried a few different recipes to get, you know, to have a, a toothpaste replacement. And one of them was an absolute disaster. <laughs> so oh. you've been a whole test bunny, have you, yeah. Fon? Thank <laughs> you for going through all this. Can I ask in what way was it a disaster? Was taste it the taste of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did one where it was based on, it was based on coconut oil, um, with some with salt and um, I think it was uh, peppermint essential oil or something. Just to add some chocolate. To give it like a peppermint yeah. fresh, you know, peppermint fresh taste. But it was absolutely awful. Like it just because of the salt, it was like really scoured your gums mm. and it was just so disgusting. So yeah, so that one didn't work. Um, 
But the tooth powder that Erin's um, got the recipe on her website of is, is really good. So what you do is you just get five tablespoons of bicarb soda, and you can get that plastic-free. So that just comes in a cardboard box from the supermarket, so you don't even have to get out of your way to get that. Um, and then you put in, you buy two essential oils. The first one is clove oil, which is also in most toothpaste, actually. Uh, but I think it's, it's listed as euphenol on your toothpaste because um, clove oil is antiseptic, it's antimicrobial. But it sends fish to sleep when you take it underwater too. Really? Yeah, we use it to sample fish. You spray it into cracks and crevices to get those that can't get out and then come along with a vacuum cleaner and suck them up. There you go. Yeah. So if you have an aquarium at home, it's so yeah. much fun <laughs> to be had. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I don't> <laughs> so, yeah. so 10 drops of clove oil go in and also 10 drops of sweet orange oil that also have uh, has my antimicrobial and antifungal properties and that makes it taste a little bit nicer. Mm. So you can replace that with peppermint oil if you like that really pepperminty taste of, of toothpaste but the orange oil is quite nice. I think actually. it's about being conditioned to it too. Yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, that's pretty much all that's there. Um, obviously discounting the horrible... You know, f- fruity bubblegum well, flavored there's, ones. There's, there's it's which are awful. that's probably actually the flavor that I've never been able to work out. And there's a red toothpaste on the market somewhere. It looks like it used to be available more commonly. Looks like you've been punched in the mouth. That I think it's mouth. actually that no, that actually <laughs> that it reminds. Now that you mention it, it probably does taste of cloves. Yeah, cloves and orange. And and the yeah. tastes go really well together as well, cloves and orange, right? Like, mm. I mean, it's the ingredients mm. for mulled wine. How can you go wrong? <laughs> Indeed. And the last one is also an ingredient for mulled wine. It's one teaspoon of cinnamon powder. Okay. And that really, um, yeah, that really makes it taste a lot better. Yeah, so, so it's that really simple recipe. You chuck it all in a glass jar. You know, you shake it so it mixes really well. And if you want to have super nice white teeth, you can add, you can crush up some activated charcoal tablets and put that in as well. So you make a charcoal powder. That does make you look like a zombie when you uh, brush <laughs> your teeth for the first time and they're all black. But as soon as you rinse it out, you know, it's all gone. Yeah, um, yeah I've been using that tooth powder for four years now. Um, and I've never had a cavity, so we're good. All my teeth are still in there. <laughs> Sample size of one. Sample size of one. Well, two actually, because Erin herself oh, uses that as well, and, <laughs> and she actually had it approved by a uh, by um, a dentist. That as was well. going to be my question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, because you know, because bicarb soda is basically just salt. Mm. You know, it's a it's it's alkaline, so you can use it for cleaning. Um, but it's basically just mm. a salt, so it's antibacterial and 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 it cleans it really nicely. And I find I find that it's, you know your teeth get really squeaky clean afterwards, <laughs> which I really love that feeling. Um, yeah, so that's a that's a good tip uh, if you want to um, start kind of um, making a plastic-free bathroom. Yeah, you do have quite a lot. We were talking about that as well. The cleaning products are. One of the big ones. Yeah. 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 And I mean, when you start looking at your house and, and starting to do it, you know, really wanting to do a detoxification of your plastic in your household, then cleaning products are a massive one. Yeah, you could do it. Um, you can kind of write a checklist, can't you? You can almost do it in a staged way. So you work out what you're going to do first and then once you've ticked those off you move on to the next one. Yeah exactly because you want the change you know if you're going to make a sustainable behavior change do it one step at a time. Yep. Change one thing first yep. and then you change know the next. and then change the next one. Don't try and chuck everything out at once because you'll just get overwhelmed yep. and that will make you give up you know yeah. and so nobody wins. Um, so start with one thing so tooth, toothpaste, uh, shampoo as well you can do that plastic free and uh, yeah cleaning products you know. 
So what are your plans for the next two weeks? We're halfway through July. Ah, yes. Yeah, so I am I am currently handling the um, yeah the cleaning products. Okay. So that's my thing now. I have uh, white vinegar at home. I've kept all of my lime and lemon rinds that I haven't used, you know, after after squeezing them, and uh, they're in there now percolating. So I just throw them into the uh, uh, into the um, the bucket, and uh, it's just standing under my sink at the moment. And then you strain it, and you got your cleaning product. That can be quite good, even just for cleaning the stove. I've found that in the past when I've used lemons in cooking, I always kind of, you know, I've got the lemon juice out of it. I keep the sort of the half of the lemon and then uh, once I finish with the cooking just actually rub it directly onto the stove and it's amazing how much stuff just comes straight yeah, off yeah yeah and I like to use some kind of product that is a scourer as well mm. for like bathroom and things like that so I use bicarb soda for mm. that which is you know as I said basically an alkaline salt um, and if you have any any you know like dried up white kind of residue after that you just spray some of that vinegar with your with the um, lemon on it because mm. that's an acid just and breaks it. that down straight away and leaves mm. a really beautiful shine so you're not only eliminating you know the plastic bottles from all those cleaning products but also a lot of household chemicals from so your life your bathroom is as shiny as your teeth it is so say. shiny does that feel good too <laughs> <laughs> Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else for us, Fom? Oh, well, I would just say keep at it. Yep. I, uh, I'd love to uh, check in with you guys and with Ant at the end of the, uh, at the end of Plastic Free July. And also, please, if you're listening and you have questions about how to eliminate particular things from your life or you want some inspiration, please do email me at farm at ecocenter.com or call me at the office. I'm always happy to have a chat and to exchange ideas as well. If you have any ideas, I would love to know about it. What's the uh, number where people can call you? Uh, that's 9534-06. 7-0 at the Eco Center. Fantastic. Thanks, Vom. Always welcome. a pleasure. And we'll catch you in a few weeks' time. We know we've got Radiothon just around the corner. We might try and sneak you in one more time before then too. Sounds good. We're being greedy. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Wayne Lynch and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3 R. 929. Thank you, Mr Lynch. Are we just going to talk about a conference briefly? Yeah, they were just following on from what Vom was saying. Um, as a member of the Australian Marine Sciences Association, um, and if any, well, there are quite a few other members of the Australian Marine Sciences AMSA out there listening, you should hold our heads up high and be quite proud because the recent conference over in Western Australia had 557 attendees and not a single bit of plastic. So they organised the whole conference plastic-free. Plastic free so conference. proud of you guys. If you're listening in, we're so proud. We're yes. like proud parents out here. <laughs> And I think it's worth a follow-up too to get in touch with the conference organisers to sort of see some of the trials and tribulations. So they actually wrote an article for the conversation about it. Mm. So how they had to start thinking about a long, long way out before the conference began and then just start bringing all their suppliers on board with the idea. And apparently it took them a bit of work. It probably took them a lot of more work than it usually would to organise a conference. But the fact that they could... It's worked now and mm. basically it's set the bar, that's it. Mm. There's any organisation working in the environmental field now has to have all conferences plastic-free. There's no excuses there. There's not. It's been done. It can be done. Yeah. That's uh, wonderful. Um, 
one thing I did want to mention while you were still here, Fom, was to talk about that uh, concept of being plastic free. And what surprised me being in Fiji was how deeply entrenched that already is. And so a couple of times we went just to a local, local super, supermarket, got out of the resort, went into Nandytown. And the, every time we went to purchase something, whether it was just a, a souvenir or actually just at the supermarket, um, do you need a plastic bag? And so plastic bags are already plastic bags are already banned in Fiji. And I don't know when, but from the from uh, the response that I was getting from people working in shops, I think it's probably been for a really long time. I'll, I'll go and do some research on that. But it was amazing. We had this one experience when we were just in it's it's New World. Do you remember Coles used to be called New World? I think yes. it's basically the same. Um, very basic supermarket. Anyway, in there, and uh, because we we're on holidays, of course, I hadn't brought all my regular bags with me, and had, did have a backpack on, but it was full of stuff. So it had my camera, had a water bottle, had you know a few bits and pieces, and um, and the woman on the checkout said. Um, you know, do you need a plastic bag? And I said, well, actually, sorry, I think this time I do. And she, she said, what's in your backpack? And I said, oh, I thought it was a security question. And I said, oh, well, it's just my camera and I've got, you know, this for my kids and blah, blah. And she looked at it and she looked in the bag and she's like, I reckon you take all that stuff out, give it to your kids and you can put it all in your plastic, in your, in your backpack. You got shamed. I did. <laughs> you got told off. <laughs> and rightly so. Well, and that, so, I think that's, that's where the power is really because we want to make being plastic free a social norm. Yeah. That's what we really want to do. And so when you said, you know, the conference there has set the bar really high, they are creating a new social norm. Yep. And the social norm is we don't use plastic. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's right. You know, I didn't see a plastic straw the whole time I was there. Um, the place where we were staying, we're using paper straws. Like, there was very, very little plastic anywhere. So. And it makes sense because if you live on a small island like that, you, you are confronted with your waste much quicker than, you know, a big island like Australia is, especially yep. since we tended to ship all of our stuff overseas. Yep. And they don't have that luxury. They have to deal no. with the things right there. That's right. So there you go. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Thank you again, Vom. <laughs> 9.32, you're listening to Radio Maranoa. And in just a moment, we're going to be speaking with Professor Matt Dunbaven from the University of Queensland about Rangerbot, which is, uh, it's just picked up an award at the Good Design Award for Sustainability in that category. Now, on Friday, the winners of the 61st Annual Good Design Awards ceremony were announced in Sydney. As Australia's highest honour for design innovation, these awards are a big deal if you work in the design industry and they celebrate the best emerging areas of design, including business model innovation, social impact and sustainability. The winner of the Good Design Award for Sustainability went to Rangerbot, the world's first vision-based underwater robotic system designed specifically for coral reef environments. Its creator is Dr Matt Dunbabin, Professor in Autonomous Systems at Queensland University of Technology's Institute for Future Environments. He's also Chief Investigator in the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision. If you're wondering what this all means, so are we. So let's ask him now. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Uh, good morning and good morning to your listeners. Great to have you with us um, and congratulations on this award. As I mentioned, it's quite a big deal, isn't it? It is. Um, it's a great recognition of a couple of years of work around trying to build uh, advanced tools to help protect some of our most vital ecosystems, which is for us the Great Barrier Reef and for reefs around the world. Now, I mentioned your title, Professor in Autonomous Systems. Uh, what's an autonomous system? Can you tell us about your job and, and also what your institute does? Yes, absolutely. So I'm, uh, in essence, a roboticist, um, and hence I build autonomous systems that are designed to go out into the environment um, and do certain things. So you could be just for monitoring, 
they monitor by themselves. But what is really exciting, this is where RangerBot comes in, is we're actually making tools that can actually manage the environment as well. And this is vital when we're trying to upscale um, some of the big problems. And that's what the Institute um, is looking at, is you know what, what's some of the big challenges that we're facing, whether it be terrestrial, air quality, or um, you know reefs and fisheries around the world. Is being in an aquatic environment something that is new to you or have you worked in, in marine or other aquatic environments before? I'm just curious how that might differ from maybe being in a, in a land-based environment where maybe things might be uh, well different or maybe even easier. Absolutely. So um, I've worked in what we call marine robotics for about 14 years, but I have worked in terrestrial environments as well. And what makes it particularly challenging is... Once you're underwater, you have no GPS systems, you have no communication, no Wi-Fi, things that we take for granted in our everyday life. And um, this requires some really careful thinking about how do we make robotic systems operate in these environments. So, for example, traditionally underwater, um, a lot of animals and particularly the, the Navy and people like that use sonar systems. So these are acoustic waves going through the environment. But they're quite expensive types of sensors. And what our group does in the Centre for Robotic Vision is create robots that can see. As a diver, I can I manoeuvre around the environment just by looking. And that's what we're trying to build into our robotic systems. That's amazing. Now, your other job title is Chief Investigator in the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision. Um, what's, what's the Centre for Robotic Vision and how does that differ from what you're doing at UQ? Um, so the Centre for Robotic Vision is a ARC, so Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence. Um, it combines four universities around Queensland, Queensland, uh, sorry, around Australia, um, Queensland University Technology, uh, Monash University, uh, University of Adelaide, and um, and Australian National University. And what our primary goal is to create robots at sea to basically give robotic systems, the ability to look in the environment, interact in the environment, whether it be the built environment, um, for example, hospitals, uh, you know, buildings, houses, or within the, the natural environment, and that's where I tend to operate. So it's around the fundamental research and scientific discovery around algorithms and sensors to make robots see. Let me say... Oh. Okay. I'm here. <laughs> We're just sorry, um, Matt. We're just trying to get another mic working. No, it's not working. Uh, what we might actually try now. Are we on? There we go. Yes. Sorry, Matt. Uh, when you say see, what like we know how we see. How is it that robots see? Is it similar to us? Can you describe what that word means? I guess in robotics. Yeah. So yeah, great question. So. Um, for us, we look at the environment, we convert light rays into, um, you know, signals into the brain and we interpret those signals. Well, for creating a robot to see, we, we technically do the same type of thing. We've got cameras that take in light and what we're trying to do is develop algorithms and interpret those signals. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm here in my office now. I'm, I'm trying to identify the cuts, the computer screen, those types of things. So we're trying to make our robots interpret the environment much the same that we do um, in, so that they can actually then start to manoeuvre around and some of the case studies that we're looking at is well how do we clean up a room you know how do you have a robot go in and actually identify that this is not meant to be there 
and it's got to put it somewhere else. So it needs to use vision um, and manipulation to be able to do that. That's so um, cool. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very cool. You could send her into my room. <laughs> but I'm sure you've got a few volunteers there. Um, let's get to RangerBot itself, Matt. Can you sure. describe RangerBot for us um, and maybe a little bit about its history, how it came to be? Absolutely. So RangerBot is fundamentally an underwater robot. Um, it's a bit different to... If, you, if you're familiar with your aerial drones, they're typically remote-controlled. Like they, They're quite smart. They can follow waypoints, but... When you go underwater, you actually need to be fully autonomous. You need to be able to set a mission and the robot has to be able to execute it. Now, what is unique about RangerBot is it only uses vision uh, because the sonars that I mentioned earlier are very expensive sensors. So all we have to do is package up a very small robot that can be used pretty much by anybody um, into uh, a usable tool that can see its way through the environment and do something pretty cool, which is not just monitor, but also um, manage or do certain tasks in the environment. Yeah, so um, where does the management side of things comes in? It come in? Is it like if it's it's out there doing its thing and it comes across a crown of thorns starfish that's not meant to be there? Is that the sort of thing you're thinking of? Exactly. So, And there's actually some really cool things that we're doing. So... Um, with the, yeah, so that management, uh, some of the tasks we have been, we've actually designed it to identify um, by itself chronothorn starfish and inject them with a solution that will, will kill them. That's just one of the big threats on the Great Barrier Reef. But one of the other threats that we have is loss of coral due to bleaching and cyclones and things like that. And um, in the last six months, I've teamed up with a professor, Peter Harrison, from Southern Cross University, and we've actually been using these robots to deliver uh, coral larvae to damaged reefs. And the robot actually identifies where it needs to start deploying this larvae and it can spread it out over the environment. And we've done this now at the Great Barrier Reef and also in the Philippines. Wow, that's amazing. I love the fact you can use this RangerBot to identify threats and, and have it do something um, about them. Is there any chance we can send it to Canberra? And um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, being facetious there. They're supposed to be paying the bills. Yes, exactly. Um, now the the press release um, that came to us from people at Good Design Awards, they said that RangerBot empowers reef managers, researchers, and community groups. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff in here uh, with intuitive, customizable, and affordable robotic tools. And so uh, it does mention crown of thorn starfish there, but it also talks about coral bleaching and water quality. How how are you thinking that RangerBot might be able to be used for uh, for coral bleaching? What 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 are some of the practical uh, things that can be done with it there? So what we've been doing at the moment is we've been identifying where coral has bleached. And as part of this coral larvae or coral restoration work, um, we can target those areas uh, for for reseeding. Um, we're looking at other aspects. There's other groups around Australia and around the world looking at new um, methods to try and minimise coral bleaching. And we see that RangerBot could be a tool to help deploy those approaches, whether it be um, uh, the sunscreen, the uh, so the calcium sunscreen that they're looking at, or um, uh, other new items that might come out in the future. We just see it as a great tool to help upscale that 
protection of uh, reef systems. Yeah, definitely. I'm wondering, is it adaptable for temperate marine environments as well and other types of aquatic ecosystems? I know it's been specifically designed for coral reefs. Is it the sort of thing that you can look to the future and think it could be adapted for a temperate marine environment? Oh, absolutely. Um, the focus has been on coral reefs simply because that's our back door. Mm. Um, but the it, it, anywhere where we have enough sort of water cl uh, clarity that we can sort of see the bottom from a couple of metres, we can actually do a lot. Um, so we've actually deployed these in Queensland, uh, sorry, as far as south as Moreton Bay, New South Wales, uh, into in New South Wales. But my previous robots, the, the prototypes were actually used down in Tasmania. So um, there's application around Australia but also around the world in different environments. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of and, and here in Victoria as well with the Northern Pacific Sea Star that, um, that you know, can get out of control in particular environments. Yeah, is that what you're using it for in Tasmania? Yes. So um, we've so part of the initial training that was to identify crown starfish, my colleagues um, a couple of years ago um, when I was back at CSIRO we're actually using vision to identify these starfish down the Derwent River. That was before it became a problem in, in Melbourne there. Um, so we see that this has potential to actually help identify the, the threats where they're emerging and to help control them. Yeah, so does the, vis does the visibility need to be at least a couple of metres? Like what's your limit with that? Um, okay, so if I start talking, talking technical... <laughs> <laughs> If you start talking, um, Just wondering how deep you can go. Yeah, so we, we can go down to 100 metres depth. Um, wow. So, uh, but And we have lights on board the robot. Uh, now, we typically work... There's a metric in marine science called the Secchi, the Secchi disc. Yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep, we're all familiar. We're all nodding. <laughs> yes, OK. So I typically work on... If I could, if about 0.7 of Secchi depth I can work in. OK. So that gives you sort of a, a if just say the second depth was two meters, I can probably work down to about one and a half meters. If it's less, obviously I have to be closer to the bottom to that, be able to see that. That's awesome, Matt. Hey, we'll have to wrap up. I'm just wondering, um, just to close out, what's next for RangerBot? What are you hoping will be the next step? I think we're going to see some large-scale coral restoration work um, going on, and also some new. The, the way it's actually a quite sophisticated. Uh, machine learning systems so some of these new threats like the northern pacific sea star um zebra mussels those type of things for early detection and reporting um there's going to be some very exciting stuff in the future that's amazing if our listeners want to find out more about rangerbot and uh where they can maybe learn a bit more or i'm um, just getting to some of those tech questions that we were yep. sort of starting to scratch at before what's the best way they can do that matt is there a website they can go to yeah so the two websites i'd probably point them to uh just for the general project if you go to the great barrier reef foundation you'll see that project plus peter harrison's project as well as the Good Design Award Australia, which gives an overview of the technical capability. Fantastic. Look, it's been absolutely amazing speaking with you, Matt, and um, wonderful finding out about RangerBot. And, uh, look, good luck with the future, and please keep in touch with us with um, whatever uh, comes next for you because we'd love to find out more about what it is that you do. Absolutely. And, Thank you very much. And, look, congratulations again on your award. Um, really fantastic stuff.
Great, thank you. We've been speaking, uh, bye for now, we've been speaking with uh, Matt Dumbabin from uh, Queensland University of Technology, not UQ as I mistakenly said before. 9.51, we're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. We're going to have uh, just a little, uh, little tiny break and then we're going to be speaking with Jeff Westcott about VAC's assessment of the values of Victoria's marine environment. Hello, hello, it's Belvedere. I have something to say while I'm here. If, like me, you love the ocean... Radio Marinara is the potion. It's on Sunday and it's very dear. And we have on the line Dr. Jeff Westcott, who is a, I think he's now an honorary um, doctorate at Deakin University as he retired in March last year, which actually coincides with the time that this report started to be written. So I'm sure there's something involved in that. Um, Jeff, how are you today? Very good, very good, thanks. Now, is there a coincidence that you finished up at Deakin and then you started on this report? Uh, not, not really. Um, I was on the Victorian Environment Assessment Council for the last um, four years and um, the coincidence more relates to the uh, study of the Marine and Coastal Act, the revisions of, of that. Um, so there is an overlap in all of these things. It's um, a lovely integrated model. Fantastic. Now, the report that we're talking about, sorry, I've sort of jumped ahead, um, is the Victorian Environment Ass Assessment Council's assessment of the values of Victoria's marine environment. Now, this was a report that was over a year in the making. Um, can you give us some idea as to what went into putting this together? And if I was to drop this report, you'd hear a massive thud on the desk. And that's just the main part. There's the other bits that go with it too. So what actually went into it and what was your involvement? So the, uh, the sequence here was that um, there was a review of uh, marine and coastal planning and management started in the middle of uh, 2015. Uh, the, in short, that resulted in a new Marine and Coastal Act, um, which was came into action late last year. And as part of that um, coverage of um, that replaces the Coastal Management Act, all well, that's pretty technical, but in short, um, the new Act added a whole lot of um, greater emphasis to the marine environment in particular, which is the interest bit of, for Radio Marinara. And a sequence of events were uh, a part of that Act. And the first part of that is to uh, prepare a, drought, a marine and coastal policy for Victoria. So an all-encompassing right of water policy like a, a sustainability policy, etc. That is now open for public um, consultation until the 15th of August. So they're on the, on the um, department's website um, and at Engage Vic is a draft marine and coastal policy. Now that um, is quite a detailed document in its own right and there was need to have information and data input into that document so that the members of the public and the community at large can have an information base on which to base their... Um, discussion and their submission to the draft policy and the marine environment was pretty underrepresented in terms of data and information and so the minister who's in charge of all of these areas um, asked VIAC to to perform a, a, an assessment of the values of the marine environment and hence this 300 page report um, an atlas that goes with it and a summary document has been produced by the advisory council on which I'm a member. Now, you've already stolen some of my questions by answering <laughs> about the draft marine and coastal policy, so I wanted to direct people there to 
put in their word. But one of the things I noticed in, and I won't lie and say I've read the whole thing, but in looking through the summary and through thinking flicking through the document is there's considerable consideration of the traditional owner's relationship with the marine environment. Now, this is something I've had the uh, pleasure of reading through some of these before in the past, and I notice it really stands out in this report. Um, How has that sort of changed, I guess, from previous documents? I think that um, it it comes back to the new Act. Um, There's four areas in the new Act, I think, that have really um, taken us into a completely different level to the previous Coastal Management Act is the focus on traditional owners, um, hardly mentioned before, absolutely central to the new Marine and Coastal Act. The focus on the marine environment, making it very clear that we're talking about marine and coastal, that means we're talking about the coastal waters, out to three nautical miles that belong to Victoria, Victoria's responsibility. And the third area is it really ties into climate change. So the whole Act really raises those three areas, traditional owners, marine and uh, climate change, to a whole new level. And the draft marine and coastal policy then has to reflect that. So the traditional owner thing is, is, is critically important. Um, so sea country is, is always been as important to traditional owners as, as land country. And... Um, this uh, major document, the Our Marine Values Assessment, has an entire chapter devoted to it, which uh, we we VA contracted out to um, to traditional owners to write, and it's a fascinating chapter, and we've put it in unchanged from the report we received. Jeff, it's Bron. We've only got about a minute left and um, we are not going to do this 301-page report justice. <laughs> We're going to organise to have you back and go through this uh, uh, go through this in a lot more detail and, and give it the justice that it deserves. It's an amazing-looking report. Just one last question to finish on, if that's OK, Cade. Go for it, Because you've done all the work <laughs> behind you, so I've sort of just swung in at the last second. Basic question about values. How do you go about deciding when you've got a report and the the, uh, the title of it is Assessment of the Values of Victorian Marine Environment? How do you know where to start in terms of identifying what those values are? The, that, that is a, a great question and that really occupied our attention for the first two or three months of this study. So the report does actually discuss what does it mean by values and the uh, environmental values in some ways are the, are the easiest to assess because uh, you've, we've got the whole scientific uh, approach, although there's gaps in it. The economic and social are much, much harder. And that's probably one reason why, for example, the media's been attracted to the coastal development chapter, because that's where all the, the economic, social and, um, and uh, environmental really interact. I suppose just in, sort of in closing, given the time limit, the whole point of this report is it's a compendium of information that people can look up and will inform the way they make their submissions. So they might be asking exactly that question, how do you do values? You could go to this um, the, to the main report, and uh, that will inform how you might write your submission to the draft marine and coastal policy. Look, as Bron said, Jeff, we're going to have to catch up with you again. Um, there's so much more to go through. Um, thank you for the time. The one thing I do want to point out to people is there. The atlas that comes with it is a fascinating resource for all the bioregions of um, the coast. So don't be afraid to go to the website and check out the summary and particularly have a look at the atlas. And as you said, that chapter on the traditional owners is fascinating. So thank you for your time, Jeff. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.